Well, good morning, everyone. You know, usually this time of the year, this is where we'd go, man, where is the time gone? It's already the last Sunday of August. But it seems like for many of us, time is just dragging on and on and on with all the, the rules and regulations and being shut up. My goal, my hope, my desire is to be back in August. We'll evaluate, I mean, not August, October. We'll evaluate all that. We'll start praying about that um, on what to do. Hopefully things will start calming down here pretty soon. So that's, that's kind of my thinking. That's where I would like to go um, on this because I, I tell you, we miss people. We miss you guys. We miss being around uh, the church, the church body, and uh, uh, doing life uh, together in many ways. So why don't we uh, begin uh, with a word of prayer as we uh, get into a new book this morning. Dear Jesus, we, uh, we thank you for the community that we have. We thank you for the community of believers that come together to, to worship you, whether it's in the building or whether it's at home, sitting in front of devices or sitting in front of TV with friends and family or by themselves, Lord, that, that you can still teach us. Your word can still change us and mold us into who you want us to be in this life and how we represent you. We pray that as we get into this new book of Joshua, that, uh, that you just bless our time together. That you teach us through his journey as we take our journey. In your loving name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, like I mentioned, we're in a new book this morning. Uh, the book of Joshua. It's a continuation of the story of Genesis and Exodus. Recently, we studied the book of Exodus, and we talked a lot about the wilderness and what to do in the wilderness and how to handle the wilderness. And Joshua is a man who went through the whole thing, and now we start toward the promised land. And Joshua is a wonderful book. It is an exciting book. Uh, what a story it is. God leading his people into promise. And the leader Joshua and, and what God does with him and through him is amazing. So we're going to turn to the word of God. Uh, you know, we've we got Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and then Joshua. Joshua 1.1. After the death of Joshua, or the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord... The Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' aid, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you and all of these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I'm about to give to you. To the Israelites, I will give you every place you set your foot, as I promised Moses. Your territory will extend from the, from the desert to Lebanon and to the great river, the, the Euphrates, all the Hittite country, uh, country the, to the great sea of the west. No one will be able to stand up against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their forefathers to give them. Well, it would be impossible really to overstate the impact of this statement from the Lord right to Joshua. Joshua had been raised in the Hebrew understanding that God had made promises to his people, but he had not heard of those promises like this. That God was going to, to keep these promises. So for him to hear them directly addressed to him was an amazing thing. 
And in order to understand these promises, we really have to go back to Genesis. In fact, we have to hit Genesis and Exodus and probably numbers a little bit to understand Joshua 1. And we've studied Genesis and, and Exodus recently, but I want to I do some review for, you know, some of you it'll be kind of review and for others it may be new to you. So let me go back through a little of this. Ever since God, uh, or ever since Genesis, God had been working to fulfill his promises. We have to understand the, the background of Joshua's heritage, his life, to understand the book of Joshua. And the magnitude of what God is saying to him in Joshua 1.1, where he basically says, come on, let's go. Let's go to the promised land. And they're all excited about it. But let's go back to Genesis and talk about Father Abraham and the promise. Abraham was 75 years old in Genesis 12.1. The Lord said to Abram, leave your country, your people, and your father's household and go to a land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And in you know, verse 5, we see him go, uh, see, him, see him actually go. And, and then verse 7, the Lord appears to him and says, To your offspring I will give the land. Now, Abram was living with his wife, and he lived in the city of Ur. He was, he was not a nomad kind of running around. He was not a wilderness person. At age 75, God proposed a career change for the man. And the Lord said, I'm going to make your offspring a great nation. And we talked about that as we went through the book of Genesis and just all the issues that went along with that, his age and him and his wife not being able to have children and so forth. And we'll get in a little bit of that, but, but it's an amazing thing if you want to, you know, all those studies are online if you want to go back and look at it. But he says, I'm going to make your, your, your offspring a great nation. And there are three parts to this promise. First off, I'm going to make you a nation. God did not even begin to fulfill this until they were way into their 90s. It took God 15 to 20 years to do what he said. Man, I tell you, it can be so frustrating when God says he will do something. And we're like, I want, to do, I want it this week. I want it this week. I mean, with my children, it's when I tell them I'm going to do something, they, they think that means right then and there, and I need to stop what I'm doing so I can do whatever for them. And sometimes I have to remind them, your schedule is not my schedule. I will get to that. Just be patient. <coughs> well, God's kind of the same way, especially when, when we read the word and we apply it to our lives because it is truly a living document. And we grab hold of a promise that, that is written for us and it's confirmed by, <coughs> by other godly followers. And we think, great, God is going to solve this situation. And then we, we begin to wait and wait and wait and wait some more. And we have to know that God does things on his timetable because his timing is perfect. And if we begin to understand this about God, then our lives are fuller. We can be at peace that God is perfect in his timing and that things will happen when he needs them to happen. See, God looks at the big term. God sees the big picture. And that long term often involves a wilderness 
period, something that we do not like. And at the end of the wilderness period, we get to the promised land. And I want you to remember one thing. God always keeps his promises. Always. This is the theme of the scriptures. From Genesis 3, I will raise up one who will bruise the, the, the serpent's head. All the way to Revelations where he says, I'm coming quickly. God keeps his promises. If God has promised you something, don't give up to that. Don't give up on it. So first off, he said, I will make you a people. And secondly, he says, I will give you a land. In Genesis 13, 14, God you know, took him to Canaan and said, I'm going to give you this land. And the third one is, not, not only a people, not only the land, but I will bless all nations through you. And he's referring to the coming of Jesus to all the people through the descendants of Abram. When God said this, he was talking to one man and his wife who had no children. No way he would have known that, that all Muslims would call him Father Abraham, that all Jews would call him Father Abraham, that all Christians would call him Father Abraham. No other person other than Christ himself has had a bigger influence on this world as Father Abraham has by his walk of faith. When God said, leave the comfort of your home and go, and Abram said, I'm on my way. You know, the Bible had not even been written yet. No way to, to confirm it scripturally. And yet he walked by faith. And we learn this in the book of Hebrews. If you go read Hebrews, it, you know, it has that faith chapter. It talks about all those big Star Wars of faith. And, and Abram is like the star of the show. Then in Genesis 15, 13, he says, The Lord said to him, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. Verse 15, it says, You, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here for for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. You see, God is going to be fair. And those of us who have read portions of the Bible and don't really, you know, haven't studied the whole thing and don't have a full understanding of God, and we get to the book of Joshua, and he's going into the promised land. And God says, destroy these people or go after those people. And, you know, and their cattle and their children and their food. Uh, you know, don't take any of it. Kill them all. Kill it all. Then those people, you know, he'd say, leave them alone. And these people just take their food. And we think, how can God be so cruel and indiscriminate? I mean, come on. But we don't understand that God judges everyone. See, our God is a God of justice. He didn't just go, well, when I, when I give my group the land... No, he waited 400 years while his children were in slavery and allowed the people of the land to continue to get more evil. I mean, they're child sacrificing to the god Molech, which is, I would say, modern day abortion. And, the, and, and they did bell worship that was so repulsive and awful to God. 
And God said to Abraham, I will use your people to punish others for their sin. From the time to time in history of the world, we see God punishing nations. And, and always for the same things. And this is why we need to make sure that we cry out to our God in our own nation. I don't want to be a part of a generation that needs to be punished by God for the, for the immorality of our nation. Sometimes it seems to me that the Sodom and Gomorrah have nothing on us today. I mean, that in many ways, we, we're worse. We don't even have to go down to a temple to stuff. We just type it on the computer and it comes right into the house if we're, if we're not careful, if we don't protect ourselves. So we should be on our knees. We should be in our community. We should be, you know, having the fruit of God that we studied about in Galatians coming off our lips and changing and trying to have an impact on our community and nation for the Lord. So we don't end up being the generation that completely defies God. So in chapter 15, God says, after 400 years, I'm going to have you go. Then in chapter 26, he says to Isaac, God, you know, he says the same thing to Isaac. And, you know, God fulfills this promise to Abraham and gave it to, you know, gave him a son, actually. Well, actually, he had two sons, but one was their own idea, which brought in the Muslim world and, and all those issues we've talked about in the past. But then in chapter 28, he repeats it to Isaac's son, Jacob. And God meets with Jacob in the wilderness. Jacob is running from his brother Esau. You know, he, he ripped off his inheritance, and Jacob meant liar and deceiver. So he's in the middle of the desert. He goes to sleep, and he has this great vision. An exact same thing, we, you know, was said to him from God. And he wrestles with the Lord. And Jacob demands his name be changed. And it was changed to Israel. And Israel ends up having 12 sons. And the favorite son is Joseph. And we're almost done with Genesis here. But his brothers, brothers hate Joseph so much, they sell him off. I mean, we've hated our siblings every now and then when, you know, you get in a fight with a brother or sister, but would you sell them off? Some of you might say, yes, hopefully not. But then they tell daddy died and he ends up in Egypt. Now, when he went to Egypt, you got to pay a tax at the, you know, at the gate of the city. So normally what they would do is, is they would take one of your slaves. And this is probably how Joseph ended up in Potiphar's house. Maybe not. We're not quite sure exactly what happened there. But, you know, this is one of the possibilities. And you know the story. He resists temptation. And what happens? Life got easier for him, right? No, it got harder. And this is a lesson for us. When you resist temptation, life may even get harder. Short term, it may be, maybe get harder, but long term, it has great effects on your life. And while Joseph ended up in jail, the Lord used him. It was not... Lord, once I'm out of the situation, I'll serve you. You know, once I, once I get things straightened out, I'll be there for you. It was serving continually for Joseph. Joseph worshiped God, and he did it from everywhere and anywhere. He ends up in front of Pharaoh and interprets a dream that no one else could. And Pharaoh makes him prime minister. The second most powerful man in the world because of God. And he saves not only Egypt from famine, but his own family. 
And the Egyptians let his family move to the land of Goshen. I mean, they kind of considered them the, the smelly goat and sheep farmers and land farmers. They didn't really want to mix with them, just leave them up there in the north. But before Joseph dies, he makes him promise to take his bones back to the land of Canaan. And after he died, they're slaves for 400 years. Literally, they were called fin shoes. And anytime you, you made the, the, you know, said the term, you would spit, you know, fin shoe, you know, you'd spit on the ground and so forth. It was not something, I mean, they were just dirty people. You didn't even talk about it. And they helped build the Egyptian empire. Some of those still, you know, some of those buildings are still standing partially today. So in Exodus 1-7, the Israelites were fruitful and they multiplied greatly and became exceedingly numerous so that the land was filled with them. This means they had a lot of kids. You see, one third of the, of the promises is being fulfilled at this point. Three promises. Make a nation, give you land, bless all the people. After 400 years that God said would happen, a little baby was born and hidden in the Nile. And his name happened to be Moses. Law was, was, the, you know, was, was to throw all the Hebrew babies in the Nile. So his parents did just that. They put a boat underneath them, you know, but they put them in the Nile like the law said. And you know the story ends up in Pharaoh's household. And at age 40, he figures out he's actually relatives of all the slaves and all the slaves are his people and he can't stand it. He gets into a fight and kills an Egyptian and spends, you know, runs away and spends the next 40 years in the wilderness. And in Exodus chapter 3, God meets Moses when he is 80 years old. And there's the burning bush. And he didn't understand that he is in front of, of Mount Sinai. No idea of the significance that, that he would be back right there. God tells him, when you get back, the bush won't be burning, but the whole mountain will. And we see that when God comes down on top of the mountain and speaks to Moses. And in Genesis 3, 7, God says to Moses, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of the slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and bring them up out of the land into good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites and Hittites and Amorites and Pezrites and Hivites and Jesuvites. So we start to see the second part of the promise being fulfilled, the, the beginning of it. And this is where Joshua comes in. He does, you know, we don't know it yet, but Joshua would be one of those young slaves. And when we think of Joshua, we need to kind of slow down a little bit. Because we see him in Jericho. We see him marching around the, the, the walls of Jericho. But we need to first see him in Egypt. Joshua is son of a slave. His dad was a slave, his grandpa was a slave, and his great-grandpa was a slave, all the way back for 400 years, longer than America had been a, you know, has been a country. Talk about a hopeless environment. All they knew was slavery, and somehow this young man was one in a million, literally. Moses tells us in Numbers that Joshua hooked up with Moses in Egypt. They became friends. And he had a heart that was unbelievable. God often will go after that heart and not necessarily the talent. 
Do you have a heart for God? Do you have the heart for God? Do you have the eyes for God? Do you have the mind for God? Do you have the feet of God? Then he wants to use you in this life. Don't forget about that. Search search and seek out God and he will use you. As a slave, you know, Joshua would have to rise, you know, above the dysfunction, the mentality that comes with something like that. So what happens? Life becomes hopeless. We're making mud bricks. Yeehaw. You know, some of us have come from the same experience as being stuck in the, in the mud of blame. The reason we are the way we are today is because of the way we are raised. It's very important for us to get out of Egypt sometimes. Do you hear me on that? Sometimes we have to put the past in the past to move forward. I'm glad you're getting in touch with your past to, to figure out the whys you are, you know, the ways you are and the why and, and all that stuff. But, but if you stay there for the rest of your life, then it becomes your own fault because you can move forward. And the one who can save you from all of that is Jesus. Sometimes he does that instantly. Sometimes he, he sends a man like Moses into your life or a woman, you know, uh, so many women in the Bible that are there for the, for the ladies. Sometimes he brings that mentor there. Sometimes we have to battle alongside of Joshua, but it can be conquered with Christ. And we, we can be the first to enter into the promised land. We can be the first in our family to have hope. God will never leave you or forsake you. So Joshua gets to see the, the plagues firsthand. I mean, wouldn't this be kind of cool to sit there and watch it? All the plagues and, you know, they're all attached to these Egyptian gods. You want to worship insects? I'm going to give you insects. You, you going to worship frogs? I will give you frogs. You will enjoy this. It, 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 to me, it seems like God's kind of sense of humor. You know, I'm tired of you people. I created the beetle that you turned into a god. I'll give you a chance, you know, to worship this beetle. And then I'll give you chance after chance after chance to turn to the real God. Yet up in the land of Goshen, things were fine. And God protected his people. And Joshua witnessed this. Especially the plague of the, the death of the firstborn. Joshua was there. Who, by the way, was the firstborn of his household. A whole generation of men who were very thankful they were not Egyptians at this point. Imagine now, you know, imagine how the Passover was very significant to Joshua from that point forward. So they left Egypt with all kinds of stuff, but before they could make it across the Red Sea, Pharaoh realizes that their workforce is now gone. Their slaves are gone, and he goes after them. And Moses takes this rod of God and raises it up and holds it up. And the Hebrews cross the river. And Joshua sees this and experiences this. Now, the reason why we're going over this stuff is is because this forms who Joshua is as we go into that book. He's not very old. Yet the next thing that happened is that he's put in charge of the Israeli army. But it's really not an army at this point. I mean, they got the weapons from the shore from when the, the, you know, the Egyptian army was, was uh, basically uh, killed in the, in the water and so forth. They are a bunch of released slaves. They haven't fought a battle in 400 years. But Joshua finds himself in charge 
and he's somewhere between 20 and 30 years of age. In Exodus 17, they're out in the desert, and they're thirsty. It's hot. We understand that out here. And the Lord had Moses strike a rock so water could be released. And this time he got it right. If you know the story, you know what I'm talking about. So a million or so people could actually drink. Very important for them to, to see that the Lord would provide for them. And Joshua gets to see this. And the, you know, the Amalekites, they show up to attack because they want the water. All of a sudden there's a new water source and they want that. And, and we see an interesting thing happen in Exodus 17, verse 8. The Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephraim. Moses said to, to Joshua, Choose some of the men and go out and fight the Amalekites. Today I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. So Joshua found the, or fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered. And Moses, Aaron, and, and her uh, went to the top of the hill. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. Uh, you know, I wonder if, if Moses did the whole, wait a second, if I lift up my, okay, wait, let me see. I wonder if he played around with that at all, you know, at all. But when Moses' hands, uh, you know, in verse 12, grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him and he sat on it. Aaron and Ur, you know, held up his he held his hands up, on one on each side, one on the other, one on this side, one on that side. So his hands remained steady till sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. This is such an interesting experience for all of them. Their first battle. Man, for him to experience this. What did Joshua learn from his first battle? It doesn't matter who you're up against. It doesn't matter how big the other side is. All that matters is who is on your side. That the Lord you called, you know, the, the Lord has called you to this battle. And the Lord who took you to, uh, you know, took you to fight this battle. And he was with this battle. And he said, you're going to win in this battle as long as you have me. That's what he learned. Zechariah later on says, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. David writes, you know, later on, some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, but we will depend on the name of the Lord, the Lord our God. See, Joshua is learning this stuff firsthand. Now let's jump to, to Exodus 24. In Exodus 24, it takes him about two months to get from Egypt to Sinai. Over a million people, somewhere between one and four million people, Moving along quickly. It says in verse 2, The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and stay here, and I will give you the tablets of stone and the law and commands I have written on the, uh, for their instruction. And then down in verse you know, 13 of Exodus 24, Then Moses set out with Joshua his aide. Joshua gets to go. He gets to hang out. He's hoping he's going to be, you know, be able to see the Lord and experience him. And sure enough, so he gets to, to feel the mountain shake. He gets to hear what's going on. Forty days he's up there near Moses. In the conversation, doesn't speak or address Moses uh, that we know of, but he was there. And he's being mentored by somebody who's closer to the Lord than him. It's a very important uh, point for us to remember. Often we put the responsibility on someone to find a mentor. 
You need to find a mentor. I think it needs to be the other way around. A mature Christian ought to be looking out and saying, who should I be mentoring? We should look around and ask God, who? And if you're not doing that, my question is, are you really being the Christian you ought to be? Go to God and ask him, should I be mentoring somebody? Should I not be mentoring somebody? Go to the Lord and ask, who should you be mentoring? And I think it's very important because Joshua ends up being mentored by, by Moses. And he sees how Moses reacts to the golden calf. Joshua sees the, the righteous, godly anger exercised in leadership. And there's a time for that godly leadership. Now, let's, you know, jump down to Exodus 33:11, And here we have Moses pitching a tent outside the camp. The tent of meeting before the tabernacle was, was built. And <clears throat> Moses would go inside and he would get direct instruction from the Lord. And, and look what it says about Joshua. Verse 11, it says, The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks with a friend. Then Moses would return to the camp. But his young age, Joshua, son of Nun, did not leave the tent. So what do we know about Joshua now? He's like some of you. He's got a hunger for God. What's he doing in the tent? Why is he there? He has no business being there. God isn't even talking to him. He's talking to Moses. But Joshua is so hungry for the presence of the Lord. He knows that if I can stay close to Moses, then I get to be close to God. That's what good mentors do. That's what good mentors provide. So Joshua really begins his own relationship with the Lord right here. Communing with the Lord. Enjoying the presence of the Lord. Some of you have kids that are attracted to, to musical worship. Fan that flame. You need to fan it to, to bring them closer to the Lord, to study the Word of God. Much of the music we sing today is directly related to the Word of God. We need to fan that. We need to teach them that. Maybe that is you. We need to fan that flame. You can spend time with God throughout your day, not just when you wake up and pray or go to bed, or, you know, but, but throughout the day. You can worship your Lord. You know, once you've been in God's presence, there's nothing else like it. All these events shaped Joshua. Took him from being a slave to being a commander, to being an assistant to Moses. And now they're on the edge of the promised land and he becomes a spy. The first time they're on the edge of the promised land, Joshua is, is one of those 12 spies. And, and look, this comes from Numbers, I think, 13, 29, some, somewhere right in there. But God tells Moses to send in 12 spies. And so Moses picks one from each tribe to see the land, to see the people, to see the towns, to see where the water holes are, to see how you know, what type of crops are, they're planting, all those things. They've been in the wilderness for 14 months eating manna. God wants to encourage the people to want to claim what God has already given them. And it says here that we went into the land to which you sent us. And it does flow with milk and honey. Here is the fruit. In verse 28 it says, But the, the people who live there are powerful and the cities are fortified and very large. Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, 
We should go up there and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. But the men who have gone up and you know gone up with him said, We can't attack these people. They're stronger than we are. And they're spread among the Israelites, you know, the, and they've spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land uh, that they they that they had explored. All the people we saw there were were of great size. We're little people, they're big. That night all the people in the community raised their voices and wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And the whole assembly said to them, If only we had died in Egypt, or at least in the desert. How pathetic. I mean, (laughs) this is terrible. This is pathetic. I mean, come on. After everything they have seen, this is their response. Says in verse 4, And they said to each other, We should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. I mean, what a really dumb idea that is. Can you imagine that? Hey, Pharaoh, we're back. You know, sorry about that whole thing. We didn't really mean to drown your army. Can we have our jobs back? Man, Joshua and Caleb, who were among those who had explored the land, tore their clothes and said uh, to the entire Israelite assembly, the land we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into the land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and he will give it to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not be afraid of the people of the land because they, you know, we will swallow them up. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. Verse 10, but the whole assembly talked about stoning them. Then the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent uh, of meeting and to all the Israelites. And, and you can already tell the Lord is not happy. The Lord said to Moses, how long will these people treat me with contempt? And this was a rhetorical question. How long will they refuse to believe in me? In spite of all the miraculous signs I have performed among them, I will strike them down with a plague and destroy them. But I will make you into a nation greater and stronger than they. See, he'd already done it once with, you know, Abraham. So he could start over. He could take Moses and Moses' wife and and just start over right there. But in verse 13, it says, Moses said to the Lord, then the Egyptians will hear about it. By your power, you brought these people up from among them. You can't do that, God. And they will, they will tell the inhabitants of the land about it. And they had already heard that you, O Lord, are with these people. The nations who have heard this, you know, heard this report about, about you will say the Lord was not able to bring these people into the land that he promised them on oath. So he slaughtered them in the desert. Come on, God. Remember, you're slow to anger, abounding in love, forgiving of sin and rebellion. Now, those are words that we use, but that's basically what he was saying. Since the Lord replied, I've forgiven them as you ask. Nevertheless, as surely as I live and as surely as the glory of the Lord fills the whole earth, not one of the men who saw my glory and the miraculous signs I performed in Egypt and in the desert, but who who have disobeyed me and tested me ten times. In this desert, your bodies will fall. Every one of, uh, of you, 20 years old or more, 
will be counted in the census. And whoever has grumbled against me, not one of you will enter the land I swore with uplifted hands to make your home, except Caleb and Joshua, son of Nun. What kind of impact do you think this has on Joshua? Remember, we started in, in Joshua 1.1. He was standing on the edge of the promised land. And 40 years later, all the, of the older generation has died in the desert. And God was not going to bless them until he found some who would wholeheartedly follow him. And Joshua and Caleb are the only two left from the, uh, you know, the older generation, that generation that defied God. What kind of man do you think Joshua is now? Think about that as we dig into this book, because the Lord is going to be talking to you about what type of person you are and how he is doing that. Joshua, after having been a slave across the Red Sea, fighting the Amalekites, going to Sinai, and after 14 months had them at the edge of the promised land, and then 38 years and 10 months later, he's back. And they have, you know, they, they had to live all of that time with God punishing the whole community for, for something they didn't even do. So unfair, yet they turned out okay because of their obedience and belief in God. Now they're going to enter into the promised land for a second time. And when God says go, they're, gonna, they're not going to be looking back this time. And this is where we're going to pick up next week. In this great book of Joshua. So the question for this week is. What type of man or what type of woman are you? And what type of man or woman that does God want you to be? Are you going to follow the Lord? Or are you going to rebel against him? Let's pray. Lord, this book is so full of you. So full of things that we can learn about leadership and a and about staying by your side, about allowing you to fight our battles and, and us uh, not trying to do it on our own. And I pray, Lord, as we get into this book over the next several months, that, that you just be there. You open our hearts and our ears and our minds to the things that you want to teach us and things that we should hear. And that you begin to, to make us anew and into to your, your man or your woman. That we would look around like Moses and say, who should I be mentoring? That we should bring up those young ones to trust in you. I pray for our young generation, Lord. That they would not go the way of this world. That you would protect them. That you would help guide them. And if we can be used in any of that, Lord, please use us. Now the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord's face shine down upon you, and may he watch over you. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. You guys have a great week.